Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast of brilliance to talk about book 10, chapter 26. Uh, what do you think of Tolstoy's characterization of Napoleon in this chapter? What do you think his purpose was in including these particular details? Which of the details did you find most ridiculous? Do you think this was a fair portrait of the Emperor? Uh, and were there any parallels between the public display of Napoleon's son's portrait and the Smolenskaya Mother of God parade and prayer service in the Russian camp? Huh, interesting question. Um, I didn't think of any parallels, but it is, it is interesting that we got a look at um, you know what's important to Kutuzov. We got a little insight into the kind of thing he might want to do before a large battle partaking in this religious parade and then we got the same kind of insight with Napoleon what does he do on the eve of battle what's important to him and he's kind of living this grandiose luxury lifestyle he's being um, kind of what's the word like honored he's being uh, spoiled <laughs> by his followers even on the eve of battle they're they're kind of sucking up to him and honouring him with paintings of his children and things like this. <clears throat> so it is interesting to see how both of these opposing uh, commanders-in-chief uh, spend their their time in the lead-up to battle. Although I don't know if Napoleon is, strictly speaking, a commander-in-chief, but the leaders of the two armies, essentially. Kara Kikas says, To be honest, I think I have only seen comedic caricatures of Napoleon in popular media, media, the most memorable being Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, the classic Napoleon. Uh, in comparison, this seemed quite tame. However, I think the purpose of this chapter is to establish a pride cometh before the fall dynamic. We need to see Napoleon at his most overconfident so that his upcoming humiliation will carry some weight. I think it's interesting that we are not getting a view of the common French soldier. They are all presented as blindly devoted to their master. I think if we did start to humanise them, then in the future we would develop complicated feelings when they all die. <laughs> Probably right. Four lost souls in a bowl, says Dibasset bowed in gratitude for his attention to his bent for travel, which he had never been aware of till then. I don't understand that. I mean, that really encapsulates everything right there. I don't really understand what it means. I think maybe there's a typo in that, or maybe I just don't know how to read it. Anyway, <clears throat> thanks for the comment nonetheless. Uh, we're getting close to a battle now, for sure, right? There's got to be a battle about to happen. What are we up to? Book 10, chapter 20... Seven? Yeah. How do you say 27 in number, Roman numerals? XXVII. Yep. Oh, look at that. The, the final line of yesterday's chapter was the line that um, Four Lost Souls in a Bowl was quoting. I'm going to read it directly from the Gutenberg translation. Uh, Debeset closed his eyes, bowed his head, and sighed deeply to indicate how profoundly he valued and comprehended the Emperor's words. Was that the bit? <clears throat> Alright. 
Chapter 27. Is it going to be a fight? Surely it's going to be a fight. Let's see some action. Although I love the way it draws out the uh, anticipation of the battle. We know it's coming. But I guess, you know, the eve of battle would be the kind of eve that would stretch on uh, kind of endlessly. On the 25th of August, so his historians tell us, Napoleon spent the whole day on horseback inspecting the locality, considering plans submitted to him by his marshals and personally giving commands to his generals. The original line of Russian forces along the river Kolocha had been dislocated by the capture of the Shevardino Redoubt on the 24th, and part of the line, the left flank, had been drawn back. That part of the line was not entrenched, and in front of it the ground was more open and level than elsewhere. It was evident to anyone, military or not, that it was here the French should attack. It would seem that not much consideration was needed to reach this conclusion, nor any particular care or trouble on the part of the Emperor and his marshals, nor was there any need of that special and supreme quality called genius that people are so apt to ascribe to Napoleon. Yet the historians who described the event later, and the men who then surrounded Napoleon and he himself thought otherwise, Napoleon rode over the plain and surveyed the locality with a profound air and in silence, nodded with approval or shook his head dubiously and without communicating it to the generals around him the profound course of ideas which guided his decisions merely gave them his final conclusions in the form of commands having listed to a suggest having listened to a suggestion from Davao, who was now called prince de ecmul to turn the russian left ring wing sorry to turn the russian left wing napoleon said it should not be done without explaining why not to a proposal made by General Campan, who was to attack the Fleches, to lead his division through the woods, Napoleon agreed, though the so-called Jude of Election, nay, ventured to remark that a movement through the woods was dangerous and might disorder the division. Having inspected the country opposite the Chevrodino Redoubt, Napoleon pondered a little in silence and then indicated the spots where two batteries should be set up by the morrow to act against the Russian entrenchments and the places where, in line with them, the field artillery should be placed. After giving these and other commands, he returned to his tent and the dispositions for the battle were written down from his dictation. These dispositions, in which the French historians write with enthusiasm and other historians with profound respect, were as follows. At dawn, the two new batteries established during the night on the plain occupied by the Prince de Ecmoul will open fire on the opposing batteries of the enemy. At the same time, the commander of the artillery of the First Corps, General Pernetti, with 30 cannon of Campan's division and all the howitzers of Dassaigues and Friant's division will move forward, open fire and overwhelm the shell fire, the with shell fire, the enemy's battery against which will operate, 24 guns of the artillery of the guards, 30 guns of Campan's division and 8 guns of Friant's and Dassaigues' divisions, in all 62 guns. The commander of the artillery of the 3rd Corps, General Fouche, will place the howitzers of the 3rd and 8th Corps, 16 in all, on the flanks of the battery that is to be bombard, that is to bombard the entrenchment on the left, which will have 40 guns in all directed at against it. General Sorbia must be ready at the first order to advance with all the howitzers of the guards' artillery against either one or other of the entrenchments, 
during the cannonade Prince Poniatowski is to advance through the wood on the village and turn the enemy's position. General Campham will move through the wood to seize the first fortification. After the advance has begun in this manner, orders will be given in accordance with the enemy's movements. The cannonade on the left flank will begin as soon as the guns of the right wing are heard. The sharpshooters of Moran's division and of the Vice King's division will open a heavy fire on seeing the attack commence on the right wing. The Vice King will occupy the village and cross by its three bridges, advancing to the same height as Moran's and Gibrard's divisions, which under his leadership will be directed against the redoubt and come into line with the rest of the forces. All this must be done in good order. Le tout se fera avec ordre et method. As far as possible, retaining troops in reserve in the Imperial camp near Mosheisk, September 6, 1812. These dispositions, which are very obscure and confused if one allows oneself and the arrangements with religious awe of his genius related to Napoleon's orders to deal with four points, the four different orders, not one of these was or could be carried out. In the disposition it said, first, that the batteries placed on the spot chosen by Napoleon with the guns of Parnetti and Fouche, which were to come in line with them, 102 guns in all, were to open fire and shower shells on the Russian fleeches and redoubts. This could not be done, as from the spots selected by Napoleon, the projectiles did not carry the Russian to the Russian works. And those 102 guns shot into the air until the nearest commander, contrary to Napoleon's instructions, moved forward. Sorry, moved them forward. The second order was that Poniatowski, moving to the village through the wood, should turn the Russian left flank. This could not be done and was not done because Poniatowski, advancing on the village through the wood, met Tuchkov there, barring his way, and could not... Sorry, one second. Uh, where was I? This could not be done... Uh, met Poniatsky met Tuchkov there, barring his way, and could not and did not turn the Russian position. The third order was General Campan will move through the wood to seize the first fortification. General Campan's division did not seize the first fortification, but was driven back, for on emerging from the wood it had to reform under grapeshot, of which Napoleon was unaware. The fourth order was. The vice-king will occupy the village Borodino and cross by its three bridges, advancing to the same heights as Moran's and Gerard's divisions, for those for whose movements no direction was are given, which under his leadership will be directed against the redoubt and come into line with the rest of the forces. As far as one can make out, not so much from this unintelligible sentence as from the attempts the vice-king made to execute the orders given him, he was to advance from the left through Borodino to the redoubt, while the divisions of Miranda and Gerard were to advance simultaneously from the front. All this, like the other parts of the disposition, was not, and could not, be executed. After passing through Borodino, the vice-king was driven back to the Colocha and could get no farther, while the division of Moran and Gerard did not take the redoubt, but were driven back, and the redoubt was merely, only, taken at the end of the battle by the cavalry, a thing probably unforeseen and not heard of by Napoleon. So... Not one of the orders in the disposition was or could be executed, but in the disposition it is said that after the fight has commenced in this manner, orders will be given in accordance with the enemy's movement, and so it might be supposed that all necessary arrangements 
would be made by Napoleon during that battle. But this was not, and could not, be done, for during the whole battle, Napoleon was so far away that, as appeared later, he could not know the course of the battle, and not one of his orders during the fight could be executed. There we go. All right, we've got all the, hopefully, probably not actually, I was going to say, we've got all of the military uh, logistics out of the way. Always happens in this book right before a battle. So hopefully we can now we can actually see some action. But then saying that, it's usually not just one chapter of military logistics, is it? It's usually a lot of them and then a battle. So, hey, maybe tomorrow we'll see some fighting. Maybe not. I do recall the Battle of Borodino, bits of it at least, from the last time I read this book. Uh, And I can say when it kicks off, I mean, we all know there's going to be a fight, that's not really a spoiler. I'll just say it is exciting. It's very cool. So, something to look forward to. I'm not promising you it's going to happen tomorrow, but it's definitely coming up soon. Thanks for listening, guys. I'll see you tomorrow.